How much do you value prayer? That's the question today. How much do you value prayer? Consider what some theologians have said. Bishop J.C. Ryle said, What is the reason that some believers are so much brighter and holier than others? He said, quote, I believe the difference in 19 cases out of 20 arises from different habits about private prayer. I believe that those who are not eminently holy pray little, and those who are eminently holy pray much, close quote. Scholar Michael Reeves said, quote, the salvation Jesus brings is a sharing of his own communion with his father. Prayer is learning to enjoy what Jesus has always enjoyed. Close quote. Chaplain from the Civil War, E.M. Bounds, said, quote, Those who know God best are richest and most powerful in prayer. Little acquaintance with God and strangeness and coldness to him make prayer a rare and feeble thing. Close quote. Theologian J.I. Packer said, quote, How can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? The rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It's that we turn each truth that we learn about God into meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. See how we put prayer at the apex. Take what we learn about God Bring it before God in meditation, leading to prayer and praise to God. Pastor John Piper said, quote, Communion with God is the end for which we were created. The Bible shows that prayer is near the heart of why God created the world. Well, let's see what Jesus has to say about prayer. Turn with me to Matthew 6. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. We could go on and on with quotes from theologians and church history about prayer, but I want you to see what Jesus himself says about prayer. Turn to Matthew 6. This is page 811, found on the Bibles near you. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. It spans three chapters. It is the most commented upon portion of the Bible, the New Testament, the Gospels, the most commented upon portion of the whole Scripture. If you go back and you look at commentaries and things written throughout the history of the church, this sermon is it. It's commented upon more than anything. And today we're at the center of the center of the Sermon on the Mount, which in and of itself is the most commented upon portion of the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer. We're walking on hallowed ground here when we read this section. Let's read verses 5 through 15. Matthew 6, 5 through 15. Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others, Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Amen. I pray we would come to understand what Jesus means by these words and actually grow in the health and vitality of our prayer lives. As we noted, we find ourselves today at the center of the center of the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer. Preachers have devoted entire sermons to just a little phrase within the prayer. There are entire sermons bursting at the seams from every phrase of the Lord's Prayer. But today we started in verse 5 and covered about 10 verses before we even got to the Lord's Prayer. Why? Because today this sermon is not just staying within the Lord's Prayer and going deep and deep into each row and phrase of the Lord's Prayer. This sermon today is a little bit stepping back. It's a few clicks back. It's kind of like what happened to my family this week when we were out at the Wildflower Center. This week I was with my family, my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, my family, my little girls, my wife. We went to the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center. I've been there before. Maybe you've been there. We're walking through the lanes. We're seeing the flowers. We're seeing different colored dragonflies. We're seeing all kinds of vegetation, unique plants, some native, some brought in. But before we set out in all these different paths, you know what we did? We went to a little castle spiral staircase. Have any of you all been there, seen this? There's a little castle structure, if you will. It's made out of stone. It has a spiral staircase And you don't walk around in there to look at any plants. There's nothing to see. It's just stairs. You keep spiraling around. You get to the very, very top. And the first thing your eyes see are this little bed of of cactuses and succulents. But that's not what you go to the top to see. Even though that's the first thing your eyes see, the moment your eyes peer out over the rim of that little planter, if you will, of, of succulents, do you know what you see? everything. You see the entire wildflower center, all the acreage. You suddenly see how all the the forest looks. You don't just see the trees, you see the whole forest. You see how the paths are laid out and it gives you this appreciation because you can see how close Mopac Expressway is to the whole place. It gives you this appreciation, wow, so much is contained in this land That's what we're doing with the Sermon on the Mount today. We're not walking through each lane of each phrase and and relishing in it and just staying there for minutes and hours. This sermon is more like, hey, come on, come on. I want to show you what it's like to stand at this tower and look out on the total package of what Jesus is saying about prayer here. Because I know that if you catch a vision for what he's showing you, you're going to want to spiral back down and then go walk through the lanes and stay there and enjoy it and look at all the details. So I'm saying that at the outset so you understand why it may feel like we're just scratching the surface on some of these things. We're trying to get that bird's eye view. And I believe that if you see it, God will work in your heart. We're going to walk through verses 5 through 15 because this section is Jesus' instruction on how to pray. He wants to teach you. I don't know where you learned how to pray. Maybe a Sunday school teacher, maybe a mentor, maybe a pastor, maybe you're self-taught at praying, maybe you've just heard others pray. Have you ever sat at the feet of Jesus and been instructed on how to pray? Prayer is so often assumed, is it not? We assume we know how to pray already. But let's look closely at what Jesus says. Let's walk through this. What we're going to do in our time is look at the do's and don'ts of praying. These are divine do's and don'ts. That's actually how the passage kind of unfolds. If you, if you put your eyes back down on the passage, look at how verses 5 and 6 begin. Look at how they each begin. And when you pray, you must not be Verse 6, but when you pray, 
go. So he gives this negative example of, of prayer, this don't, don't do this, but when you pray, do, do this. And then it happens again in verse 7. And when you pray, do not. There's another negative. But then look again at verse 9. Look over at verse 9. Pray then like this. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He is weaving together these do's and don'ts for your prayer life. We're all prone to have problematic ways that we pray by default. Namely, because we think we just know how to pray instinctively. We assume I've heard others pray, so I guess I know how to pray. I've watched others do it. I've heard others do it. I think I know how to pray. I've been a Christian for a number of years. Jesus wants us to be well-informed to learn how to pray. And he gives two negatives, two positives here within this framework. And that's going to be our framework for this sermon this morning. We could package them together. The first do's and don'ts all fit into this package of our motives. The motives of our heart. This is verses 5 and 6. Have you ever wondered, what are the do's and don'ts of the type of motive my heart is supposed to have when I'm praying? What kind of motive should I have when I pray? Well, we're going to look at those do's and don'ts. And then we're going to look at the content of our prayers, the do's and don'ts of the content of our prayers in verses 7 through 13. We have a lot to learn, so much to learn. This is not instruction about whether or not you have your eyes open when you pray. It's depending on which part of the world you live in or what era of Christian history you are living in. Christians have been known to pray with their eyes open in the past, in the early church even. Pray with their hands outstretched, eyes open, in services. There was no eyes closed stuff. This message today is not about those kind of details of whether your eyes are open or closed while you pray, whether or not you're on your knees or standing with your arms outstretched while you pray. This is not about whether you keep a prayer journal or you go on prayer walks. Here, it's about the motive of the heart and the content of your speaking. These are divine do's and don'ts. Sincerity is important when you pray, but also theological accuracy. And I want to show you how within these do's and don'ts, our motive and the content of our words, they go together. They can't be separated. Walk with me through this passage and go ahead and put your guard down for a moment. Some of you might, might already feel guilty because we're talking about prayer. It's really easy for a, a preacher, a pastor, a Bible school teacher, Sunday school teacher. It's really easy to make a Christian feel guilty about prayer. Maybe you've heard somebody say before, hey, if all the people you've been praying for to be saved were saved this week, what would happen? You know, they try to catch you in how, how much are you praying for the lost. and They try to catch you in how often you're praying and look at the clock. It's, it's easy to feel guilty. This message this morning is not about feeling guilty with prayer, but it is to help you be like Jesus when you pray. He expects you to pray, and Jesus knows that it's expected, but it's learned. Prayer is learned. How wonderful that he teaches us how to pray. And so here he gives us the do's and don'ts of a healthy prayer life motivated by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's begin first with motives. What are the do's and don'ts of our motives? We'll repeat this twice, so don't worry if you can't jot this down or remember it all. Let me give it to you in kind of a bundle right at the front. Verses 5 and 6 will unfold this. Here's some do's and don'ts of the motives. Do. Do stay conscious of God when you pray. Don't. Don't be a hypocrite and pray merely to be seen. Do, do cultivate and protect and highly value your private prayer life. Don't forget that God sees in secret. Those are some of the do's and don'ts in this section. Let me show you. This is wonderful. Put your eyes on verse 5. Put your eyes on verse 5. Dealing with motives here, 
Jesus gives us this negative don't. Verse 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. You must not be like the hypocrites. This is our first and firm don't. And it's a don't of prayer that is don't have insincere motives like the hypocrite, the stage player. For the hypocrite, it sounds like prayer and may even look like it, but in reality, it's not. It's not genuine prayer. It's just an opportunity to be seen by others. And you may be wondering, when, when would hypocrites in the first century have even the opportunity to be seen? I mean, is it like our current practices today? We kind of have one gathering on the Lord's Day on Sunday where we're all gathered together. I mean, how often could hypocrites do this? Is it just a once-a-week thing? Well, prayer was a pillar of Jewish society. The evidence of this is clear from Acts chapter 3, verse 1. It says Peter and John were going up to the temple when? At the hour of prayer. This was the ninth hour, 3 p.m. We see that from Acts 3, 1. 3 p.m. Public prayer said aloud in the morning, midday, and evening was the common practice every day of the Jewish community. This was most likely sparked by Psalm 55, 17, where it says in that very verse, our cry and our groaning and moaning goes to the Lord in the morning, afternoon, in the middle of the day. It says that right in Psalm 55, 17. So hearing and getting to be seen by others in prayer was very normal. Prayer was so public in the first century, and it was regular and ordinary to be public. So what is Jesus calling his followers to do when they would have originally heard this message on the Sermon on the Mount? Is he saying, don't go up to the temple three, day, three times a day and pray? Is that what he's saying? No, he's simply warning them of being seen by others. Did you see how verse 5 finishes out? After he says, don't be like the hypocrites, he says, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Seen by others. The hypocrite's heart is not communing with God when they pray. They're more conscious of what other people think of how they're being perceived. They're more conscious about how they're sounding to other people. This is a real danger in our prayer life. When that's the motive, just to be seen or to be heard or to sound in a, in a good, positive light in front of somebody else, Jesus warns us here as verse 5 finishes, he says, Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. That's the first don't in our motives of prayer today. I hope and pray that you will be on guard against the motive to ever pray and you get so caught up in how are people hearing me that that crowds out the fact that you're actually talking to God in your prayer. If this wasn't a real temptation, Jesus wouldn't have to teach on it. We should watch for it. Before we keep going, though, let's just pause and ask, what is prayer? Just take a 30-second aside. What is prayer? We don't want to get caught up in all these do's and don'ts and just zoom right past what it is. Let's just borrow an example from John Calvin. In 1537, he said, quote, Prayer is a form of communication between God and ourselves by which we set before him our desires, our joys, our complaints. In short, all that goes on in our heart. This being so, every time we call on the Lord, we should be careful to descend into the depth of our heart and to speak to him from there and not just with the throat or the tongue. What a great definition of prayer. It's not just the throat or the tongue. It's coming from the depths of the heart in communication to the Lord. So we should be careful that we don't have that hypocritical motive when we pray, just to be seen by others. But then we get to the do, we get to the positive. Jesus wants you to keep your head up. It's not just shame. You're, you're not praying right. You have bad motives at times. He's saying, no, 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 do this. Here's the positive. Look at verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room. 
shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret. You know what the original language, the Greek word for room there is? It's room. It's not some secret translated word into English that we're like, where is this secret secret room? Is it a certain type of architecture that we build? No, it's a basic room. It's the word in the original language for just an inner room, something domestic, something plain, a storeroom even, a room not tagged with religious overtones. It's not a public place. It's your room, most likely where you dwell, where you live. Sure, it could be a prayer closet. You've heard that phrase. Jesus says, shut the door and pray there. Why? Because this is a direct antidote to what the hypocrites are doing, praying to be seen. He says, go to the place where you're not all put together when people see you. You don't have an opportunity to speak in front of a bunch of people and everybody's listening. Go to a place where it's just you and God. Be in an undistracted place. And, And don't be a literalist here where you think, well, I can't pray outside. It has to be in a room. You remember Jesus in Mark 1.35? He gets out early in the morning to a desolate place, and there he prays. Jesus wants them to, to think about how they could get undistracted moments with the Father. Imagine how this would have sounded to the ears of those who were so used to praying publicly three times a day in the temple complex, in the synagogues. Jesus is saying it's not about public visibility so much. Why? Because God sees all. It says there in verse 6 at the end, your father who sees in secret will reward you. This means do maintain that intentional private prayer life to God. It means stay conscious of God when you pray. Don't be a hypocrite to be seen. Cultivate, protect, highly value, and guard your private prayer life. Don't forget God sees in secret. Ask yourself this question. Who's going to know if your private prayer life is good or bad? Go ahead and answer that question in your mind right now. In your mind, answer the question. Who's going to know if your private prayer life is good or bad I'm not going to know in one sense you could say people will know because of probably how you live what's going to flow out of it but in in a very large sense no no one's going to know but God he sees in secret in other words there's no place or way or time you could pray that is unseen Ultimately, it's always seen. God sees it. He knows it. Are you relishing in the privilege to pray to him? In these opportunities where you don't have to worry about anyone else seeing or hearing you, you just get to pray with your father. Do you see the inestimable privilege it is to pray to God? This is why Mason read for us Psalm 8 earlier in the service. What is man that you're mindful of him? What is man that God, the infinite father of the universe, the creator who inhabits all spaces, would would condescend to us, frail and finite, and bend his ear to hear us? It's a privilege. So do be sincere when you pray to him. He listens. Do take time to pray privately to God. Pray sincerely. Don't pray like a hypocrite. Theological accuracy without sincerity, if you gut out sincerity, it becomes hypocrisy. But the reverse is also true. Sincerity can't be the only thing guiding our prayers. It has to ride upon the desire for theological accuracy, the content of what we say. So it's not only our motives, but it's actually the content. And that's this second section that we want to see today in our passage. What about the do's and don'ts of the content of our prayers? This begins in verse 7. Verse 7. It says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. Let's just pause. This reminds me of growing up in the very large Southern Baptist church that I grew up in. Very large. 
And as a young Christian, I remember hearing people pray. They would come up and pray. Sometimes it would be in Sunday school or from the pulpit. Have you ever heard this phrase, especially in a Southern Baptist church? Lord, please give this family a hedge of protection. A hedge of protection. I'm not saying you can't pray that, but I'm just, I want to clue you into what it was like for me as a young Brand new Christian, age 13, I'm hearing people pray, I'm, I'm vicariously learning how to pray. I started using that phrase. Lord, I pray for a hedge of protection today. I pray for a hedge of this and that. I remember watching college football game day on ESPN. I would see Georgia play, and they had these hedges around the field. And I thought, wait a minute, that's what a hedge is. And it dawned on me, I had been using the phrase hedge probably for six, seven months. I didn't even know what a hedge was, but I heard this phrase and thought, that's what God wants me to do when I pray it. Brothers and sisters, we all do it. Do you listen and hear for phrases that people that you think are godly say, and you think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that phrase because God's really going to like it if I use that phrase. You don't even know what you mean when you say it. Maybe even it's a word like sovereignty. You hear somebody pray, God, we praise you and love you for your sovereignty. And you don't know what sovereignty means, but you start using sovereignty in your prayers. Jesus is saying, don't heap up any empty phrases. He says that in verse 7. When you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, as the ethnikos, as the nations do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. This is the don't of your content of your prayers. Heap up empty phrases means literally to babble or stammer. This is vain repetitions. So whether it was me as a young kid saying hedge of protection or other phrases you hear, be careful that the content of your speech is not empty. You, you know what you're saying and what, what words mean, and it's not just religiously sounding. At the end of verse 7, he says there, they think they will be heard for their many words. This is that loquacious attitude. That's an old word that we don't use much. Loquacious means you're just really, really wordy. There's a lot of wordiness with you. It means you don't get to the point. Do you like talking to anyone when they don't get to the point? Probably not. I mean this in all kindness. God doesn't like it when you don't get to the point. Because he already knows what you're going to say anyway. He's wanting to reward you. He's wanting to answer your prayers. So he's wanting you to get to the point of what you're saying to him. So that you're not wasting time beating around the bush. Thinking that it's more holy to have a longer prayer. Do you think it's irreverent if somebody just prayed for a minute? Versus if they prayed for 20 minutes? Well, it depends, doesn't it? It depends on the content of that 20-minute prayer versus that one-minute prayer. It doesn't necessarily mean one is right or one is wrong. It is wrong if that 20-minute prayer gets to the point the same way that one-minute prayer does and all the rest was just fluff, beating around the bush, thinking God's really pleased because I just prayed for 20 minutes. Verse 7 is striking. Why does Jesus bring to these original hearers their mind of what the Gentiles do. Think back. Imagine you're in the first century and you hear Jesus say, that's what the Gentiles do. Who is he talking about? He's talking about all those other nations that don't have the revealed word of God. They don't know the living God. This would be pagan rituals, pagan prayers, meaning idol worship, chanting, and long summons. If they're not speaking to the living God, then all they can do is try to conjure up something, maybe even pursue magic in their prayers. A shaman or a priest of some pagan religion would, would be wasting their time in these long prayers trying to conjure up something to happen. Jesus says, don't pray that way. It's not about magic phrases. It's not about how long you're praying. In fact, don't pray like God's asleep. In the Old Testament, we see that one of the indictments against idol worship, against Baal, 
when the prophets were cutting themselves and crying out, what does God's prophet say? Perhaps your God is sleeping. You need to rouse him and wake him. Don't pray like the pagan nations. But this idea of don't pray long, be concise, get to the point, don't heap up empty phrases means for us, be careful when you pray something from memory that's maybe even rote. Many of you have probably learned the Lord's Prayer. You probably heard it when you were younger. We're going to get there in just a moment. The danger of praying something rote is it can become thoughtless, perfunctory. You can just parrot the words. You would be guilty of theological accuracy, and yet it would be empty phrases in that regard. So it's not just words you don't know what they mean, but it's when you use words and you know what they mean, but you're just saying them and you're not dwelling on what they mean. You're just saying them because you know those are the words to say. There's many ways to be tempted to have dry, formulaic words. There's a double edge here. We want to pray the Lord's Prayer, which we're going to see, but we don't want it to become itself an empty phrase. I don't want to step on the toes of your prayer practices if you pray the Lord's Prayer often, because you you should. But be careful that it doesn't just become rote. Be careful. So there's do's and don'ts in this section of content here. Be concise. Don't blabber. Don't circle around the point. Don't think you'll be heard for your supposed length of prayer. But do believe that God is welcoming your prayers because he's already aware of what you're going to say. And he's about to teach you how to pray. Pray for the glory of God. Pray beyond just yourself. It's interesting, isn't it, that verse 8 says, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. And the the whole passage doesn't just stop there and say, therefore, you don't really need to pray because God already knows it. Jesus follows that up with, pray then like this. So here we are, we're, we're coming around the corner to the last portion of our passage today. The biggest do of them all, do this, pray like this. And we're gonna look at the Lord's Prayer. And again, we're gonna take a bird's eye view but I hope it warms your heart enough to want to run through these lanes later. This is like a giant apple orchard, and you've just got a little basket right now in the time we have remaining. We're only going to put a few few apples in the basket. We're, We're not going to be able to stuff it full and get every apple off every tree of every phrase. Don't get upset. When you eat the apples, go back through the orchard later yourself. Pray to your Father in secret. Before we look at the Lord's Prayer, though, We can't skip the way verse 8 finished because for many, for many Christians, there there comes a point in the Christian life where people just hit a wall. They feel like, why should I pray? If God's sovereign, if he knows all things, why should I pray? If things are foreordained by him, if he knows all things, if he's provident, if his providence is guiding all things, why should I pray? Did you see how verse 8 said, your father knows what you need before you ask him? This is the echo of Psalm 139, verse 4. It says, you, O Lord, know the thoughts, the words on my tongue before I even say them. So I'm asking you, what do you do about the young Christian who comes to you and says, why should I pray? God already knows what I'm going to say. Why should I just, why even bother? That's not a real relationship. I was helped in wrestling with that question as a young Christian, why pray if God already knows it all, by a theologian named Bruce Ware. He boiled it down to this as an answer, and it's profound. The answer for why we pray, even though God already knows it all, and he's sovereign, is two words, relationship and participation. I may know the words that my young daughters are going to say to me because their vocabulary is so limited, but there's still a real relationship there when they use those limited words that I know they're going to say. That's only for a small amount of time because you know kids just rapidly pick up more and more words. The youngest Christian knows how to pray almost instinctively as they cry out to God, but as we grow and mature, we, we have different words, but God still knows all the words we're going to use. We still pray because it... It helps our relationship with God, knowing him, and our participation in kingdom work. We pray for things. They really happen. It's wonderful. 
Have you considered that God speaks to us non-verbally through the providences that we see and in his creation, his, his eternal attributes? And he speaks verbally to us in the word of God. So he's a speaking God. He's speaking to us. And we actually get to respond back to him through prayer. So there is a real relationship that happens. God's speaking to us. We're speaking back to him. Even though he knows what we need before we ask. Which is why Jesus says, pray like this. So here's the biggest do of the do's and don'ts. So let's look at verses 9 and following. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I guess we need to pause again and say, wait a minute. Is Jesus saying that when we pray, we have to use this phrase? Is this, is this more than just kind of a model example? Is this the liturgy? We have to pray with this phrase? Well, of course not. Look at the book of Acts. Look at the letters of Paul. You don't have to use the exact phraseology found in the Lord's Prayer, but the themes and ideas are true. The best place to see this is actually in Luke 18. Do you remember the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector? One went into the temple and he says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I pray. I tithe. I fast. I, I give so much. God, I'm so great. Thank you for making me so great. But then the tax collector beats his chest and all he can say is, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all he said. And he wasn't condemned because he didn't cover every point of the Lord's prayer. We know from the New Testament that God is pleased with many types of prayer, but any prayer you find in the New Testament, somehow, someway, its theme, its content will dovetail right back into some theme covered in the Lord's Prayer. So the Lord's Prayer is that, that seed, that acorn from which the whole tree of any prayer you could pray that's going to please God would, would flow from. And these are prayers that we pray to God on this earth. Because as we're going to see in a moment, these things about temptation and forgiveness, trials and evil, when we're in heaven with the Lord for all eternity, it's almost like the booster of this rocket just falls off and all we're left with, Lord, Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. Because his kingdom has then come, his will is being perfectly done, we don't have these needs like we once had that may or may not be met during the day. Temptation is done with. Evil is done with. We keep praying, hallowed be thy name, though. This prayer is tailor-made for you in the battleground of where you live now. The pressures, complexities, frustration, the vexing things that come your way as you sojourn to heaven. The Lord's Prayer, again, we're seeing this from a bird's eye view, deals with your life now. Have you taken Jesus up on his offer, his command? Pray like this. Pray these things. I praise God for some of you that had a Sunday school teacher that taught you how to pray, or your grandparents, or your parents. I praise God for that. You need that. But take what they taught you and examine it with what Christ says. Much of it will probably add up. But there may be some things they left out that they couldn't teach you. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Father, that tender word for sons and daughters, the warm, inviting, personal trust of a father. What do we pray? Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. What does this mean? Well, in our modern day language, this, this is like the movie Remember the Titans. When Denzel Washington takes the football team at a 3 a.m., not 3 p.m., 3 a.m. run in the middle of the night. And when the sun comes up, they appear at the cemetery, the graveyard of Gettysburg. And he says, gentlemen, this is hallowed ground. And he uses that to launch into a speech about how they need to work together and respect one another. He says, this is hallowed ground. 
the way we know what the word hallowed means, that was the first time I ever heard the word hallowed. I'm letting you tap in again to my young Southern Baptist upbringing. It was when I watched that movie. What about today? Where is the most hallowed ground to the secular mind here in Austin? Where is it in most people's minds? For many people, the most hallowed ground is their own body. For others, in fact, for many, for thousands, I can confidently say, you know what it is? It's Daryl K. Royal Texas Memorial Stadium. If we want to make a place that's hallowed, what do we do? We pump millions of dollars into a massive structure for sports, and we make sure the grass is perfectly cut, the paint is perfectly lined, the seats are in order, the place is cleaned up, the lights are working. And it's not hallowed ground because it's just built and we go on about our lives and nothing happens there. It's hallowed for so many people. Why? Because of what happens there. It's hallowed. We're getting to what hallowed means. That's the point of describing this. Hallowed, if you were to ask a, a UT football player, hey, is, is that a hallowed place to run out of that tunnel, to hear the, the fans, to hear the cheering, to battle, to win? It's hallowed for that person. Why? Because they revere it. They esteem it so highly. They think about it often. They, they work and strain and live all leveraging it for those moments that happen on that field. If you can understand that, you can understand a little bit about what this word hallowed means. Take that example from the secular world and and link it up with the biblical description of what hallowed is. In the Bible, hallowed means to sanctify. But we know God is perfect in his perfection, so he can't become more holy and more perfect. So it means that, that we want his name to be hallowed. That's the way the, the prayer starts. We want his name to be referenced and esteemed, hallowed, in other words, his name becomes more holy in our hearts as we honor him, as we crave and love and enjoy the beauty of his holy perfections even more. Is that how you pray? I mean, if you're like me, most often you pray something like, Heavenly Father, I, and you fill in the blank, you've already said I, you've already started with it's me and kind of what I want and what I need. Jesus is radically rescripting the starting point of our prayers, where we think about the one we're actually speaking to. We are utterly conscious of his holy set-apart perfections, his love. We begin our prayers that way. That's, that's a wonderful spirit of prayer. That's how Christ teaches us to pray. Have you learned that? That's the big do of the prayer. Do this. Pray this way. Hallowed be your name. There is something in your life that you are hallowing right now. There's some kind of idol. There's some kind of person or place or thing or ambition or goal or achievement. There's something you're, you're hallowing. Is it God's name? Hallow be your name, Lord. The hallowing of God's name reminds us of Matthew chapter 23. We saw this back when we talked about oaths. Remember when we talked about words and truths and oaths and we said the Pharisees would often say, you don't have to swear by the, by the gift or by the altar, just the gift on the altar. And Jesus starts to use this language in Matthew 23 where he says, is it the gold that's sacred or the temple that makes the gold sacred? Is it the gift that's sacred or the altar that makes the gift sacred? That word sacred used a few times in Matthew 23 is the word we see here for hallowed. It's the word for sacred, sanctified, set apart. It's holy. It's devoted utterly to God. It's for God's glory. The weight of it is what hallowed means. For any University of Texas football athlete, the hallowedness of the stadium and the events of the game carries more weight and glory in their mind than, than other things. 
God wants his name to be that most weighty thing in your mind that everything else in the solar system orbits around. Is that how you pray? Brothers and sisters, you know this to be true, don't you? As Christians, we understand we can't even begin to pray that way unless the gospel has changed us. Jesus is described in Hebrews 5, 7 as in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. He hallowed the holiness of God. He reverently endured the cross. Jesus went to the cross, praying throughout his whole life, even praying on the cross. And in that strange providence, new moments where he couldn't commune with his father. Father, why have you forsaken me? He's even praying to God in that moment, but nothing's coming back. He's experiencing the wrath of God on behalf of sinners, you and me. Non-believer this morning or deceived person who thinks they're a believer, I want to remind you, you're not praying to the living God and fellowshipping with him unless you know the gospel, unless you've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. That's why he went to the cross, to die in your place. In your place condemned he stood, but then he rose again. And all the benefits of his life, his resurrection, come to those who turn to him by faith and trust him. In fact, those who use the means of prayer to put out an open hand for the gospel actually do that by prayer because of what says in Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you see how prayer is woven into gospel salvation? Prayer doesn't earn you salvation. In fact, the very urge to pray comes because the Holy Spirit has caused you to see the beauty of Christ. But prayer is intimately involved with your salvation. You call upon the name of the Lord and so you are saved. You call upon him because of seeing Christ dying in your place. You call upon him because you know, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, you've turned your back on his ways, you've rebelled. And your communication with him has been severed ever since until you can be cleansed, forgiven, and you receive the grace of Christ. In love, God wants to give you the gospel so that you can commune with your father. What is the point of heaven and eternal life everlasting? Is it not communion with the Father? We call upon his name. We know the gospel. Our hearts are changed. We're cleansed. We're forgiven because we've turned from sin and trusted in Christ. And we're not made perfect because the rest of the prayer shows us that we have, have sins we need to be praying about. But we now have a real walk with the Father. So as we slide on through the rest of this prayer and you'll probably feel like wow we're not we're not covering enough again this is the high level bird's eye view as we just slide through the rest of this prayer think about how the gospel causes us to pray hallowed be your name because we're renewed and it also leads us to pray these things the gospel changes our hearts to pray like verse 10 says your kingdom come so we see the kingdom of darkness and the lies of satan and how it's scattered about the earth and trying to bring dominion for Satan, and we pray, Lord, your kingdom come. We, we align ourselves with wanting God's kingdom to advance. His rule, his reign, that's his kingdom. It's the place where holiness is operative. We want his kingdom to come, to finally come, to be consummated. We want his will to be done. It says there, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, meaning God's revealed will, his moral will. Heaven is a place where his will is not resisted in any way. It's perfectly, joyfully carried out. We pray that way. These first few petitions of the prayer speak of the preeminence of God, and then the rest of these petitions speak of the daily needs we have and just the community of life. We see in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. We pray for the necessities of life, our daily physical needs, food, clothing, things needful to sustain our existence. We commend ourselves to the Lord's providence. We entrust ourselves to his care to feed us, 
to look after us, to preserve us, to trust in the littlest things down to a crumb of bread. Verse 12, did you see that? Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. This is not praying for justification all over again. No, we're saved, we're declared righteous, but just like in any marriage, if there's strife and disharmony, you don't need to get married all over again. You just need to deal with that sin and restore fellowship with the spouse. The same is true with God. The Christian prays, Lord, forgive me my debts, which is linked together inseparably with forgiving others of their debts, the things others owe you. So the way to pray this in the Lord's Prayer is to think, okay, what does somebody owe me? What am I mad about? What am I bitter over? What do they owe me? They didn't give me praise. They didn't give me respect. They didn't do this. Fill in the blank. Pause. Turn that around and shoot it up to God. God, I've done that to you. I haven't given you this. I haven't done that. Remember again how you've been forgiven, and that infuses back into, okay, I can forgive them. They're not going to sin against me more worse than I have sinned against God. Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You release punishment upon others for their sin. And then verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We don't want trials, which is the similar word for temptation there. We don't want trials and difficulty. We trust God's wisdom if they come to us. It's in his providence that it's going to refine our faith, but we don't want it. We want to be delivered out of it. We pray with a watchfulness, an expectation that God will deliver us, drag us out of evil and danger at times. Can you see from that bird's eye view that this is a complete prayer? It's like a complete meal. You know those times when you've got a a plate of food in front of you, but you only really want to eat one thing on the plate. You're not really craving the rest of it. Or maybe you're thinking about dessert that's not even on the plate. We can do that in our prayer life, brothers and sisters. We can see all these wonderful, sublime topics and details to pray for, but we can just pick our own hobby horse of what to pray for. Jesus is instructing us to pray this way. Cover all of these kind of themes in your prayer, in the regular diet of your prayer. Have you learned this? This is wonderful. It's wonderful, and it's not meant to keep your head in the clouds. That's why verses 15 and even verse 14, Jesus reiterates, hey, if you don't forgive others their trespasses, your father's going to be holding back forgiveness from you. It's going to mess up your relationship with God if you're thinking you can just keep it going with God and and diss others. Jesus knows that that's a part of the prayer we'd be really prone to dismiss. I would invite you and encourage you to get resources on prayer, to talk to brothers and sisters about prayer. There's so many resources we could recommend from Christian authors and things in church history. But let's close today just simply asking the question, are these do's and don'ts of the motive and content of prayer that pleases God what infuses your prayer life? How you pray shows how much you value prayer. And how you pray shows whether or not you've ever sat at the feet of Jesus to listen for how to pray. I hope that you'll pray. Why? Because your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Pray this way. Let's close.